If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the 1950s, an exciting new technology was taking off in dramatic fashion. In the latest episode of our monthly series marking the centenary of the BBC, media historian David Hendy speaks to Matt Elton about the rise of television in the decade and how across the 1950s, the BBC found itself increasingly at odds with the political world. We're now steaming ahead, heading into the 1950s, and I thought we should sort of check back in, as it were, on the status of television by this point. What's its status? What's the status of TV uh, in the BBC's output as we enter the 1950s? So just to remind us, we we have TV starting as a regular service in 1936. It gets shut down with the start of war in 1939. And in 1945, plans are afoot to relaunch it. It doesn't actually open until 1946. And even then, it's really still a very small part of the BBC's activities. But it is growing very significantly throughout the 1950s. It's facing some really big challenges. The first of those is in 1946, we're in a Britain uh, which is in the grip of rationing. Consumer goods are very rarely on sale in Britain. A lot of them are destined for export. The government still has tight control of BBC spending. And that means, for instance, that you've still really got right at the beginning of the the launch of post-war television, just one transmitter at Alexandra Palace. And through the late 1940s and early 1950s, the BBC wants to open more and more television transmitters so that television can become a national service. But that is, that's restricted. The, you know, and the BBC understands that it has to play its part in a kind of austerity economics. You've also got Uh, The survival of a strong BBC tradition with Broadcasting House, uh, the centre of affairs, and radio as the senior service. And the top brass of the BBC are all radio people. They're not against television as such, but they want television to conform to existing BBC standards as they see them, to to be sober and civilised and uplifting and so on. And, And that provides a certain drag on the development of TV. And then the final challenge is that you've got a lack of cooperation from a lot of commercial enterprises, theatres, film companies, sports promoters, Uh, artists, agents and so on, are all still a little bit anxious about television stealing their business. So, So the BBC is, there are all sorts of things that are holding television back. What it's got in its favour is a small group of 
energetic individuals at Alexandra Palace and later at Lime Grove, when it takes over the Lime Grove studios. They're energetic, they're pushy, they're creative, and they bring energy to the medium. And even though it's neglected in a way institutionally, this gives them the space to take a few risks and to improvise. And they become very, very accomplished at making do and creating new programmes and new styles out of pretty scarce resources. Histories of this decade obviously focus on 1953 coronation of the Queen Elizabeth II as a key moment in TV's development. Was it a key moment or do you think that's been overstated? Well, it was a key moment and it's been overstated. They're both true, I think. It was referred to inside the BBC as the outside broadcast of all outside broadcasts. And in an echo of D-Day, it was also called by some insiders C-Day. The BBC was determined to do the coronation well. And it had the resources to do this, actually. Outside Broadcast was a was a good, solid, experienced unit within television. It was led by an extraordinary figure called Seymour de Lobinière, nickname Lobby, uh, who was six foot eight inches tall, by some way the tallest person in the entire BBC. And he'd been... Uh, a key figure in coordinating the coverage of D-Day. He'd run outside broadcasts for radio. He had an able assistant in Peter Dimmock, and he gathered around him a really good team of commentators, and he trained up the commentators to kind of the, the, to use their skill of description for television, which was different than the skill required for commentating on radio, where everything had to be described. For television, it, you had to be a bit more sparing and make sure you weren't just repeating what was on the screen. So there was a, a really good, strong outside broadcast team. They had opposition from the the cabinet. Uh, they had opposition from the royal family. They had opposition from Westminster Abbey and religious figures, all of whom were a little bit perturbed by the idea of television cameras being present for a sacred moment. And in fact, the BBC did actually play a little bit of subterfuge here. There was a concession uh, when cameras were finally allowed. They were allowed on condition that there would be no close-ups of the Queen at the crucial moment of anointing. And actually, the, the, the BBC camera operators, for a rehearsal, used a wide-angle lens, so it looked as if there was no close-up. And then when it came to the coronation day itself, they sneakily swapped it for a different lens and actually had delightful close-ups of the ceremony, which, of course, made it better television. And no one really noticed and no one really complained. On the day itself, the BBC had quite an operation. Cameras fairly well hidden, dotted around Westminster Abbey and on the route of the procession, microphones everywhere. David Dimbleby tucked away in a box uh, from morning onwards, providing commentary that was so perfectly timed and polished to fit into the, 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 the music and the trumpets and the, the words of the Archbishop that I think in many ways it sounded as if as if Richard Dimbleby himself was actually conducting the, the ceremony. For viewers at home, 
I mean, it was an extraordinary event. 20 million people watching on television, arranged in families, neighbours coming together and so on. That's half the adult population. In fact, not everyone was gripped. If you look at the, the evidence of uh, of mass observation and people's diaries and so on, um, you find that you know a few people dozed off. Everyone, a few people thought it was a, a little little bit boring. At the end of the day, apparently, more people thought the news about the conquest of Everest was the key moment of the day. So, so mixed reactions from viewers. I suppose the crucial thing that people remember is the idea that everyone rushed out to buy a television set. Well, sales of television sets had been going up anyway. They were rising. A lot of people had bought TV sets for the FA Cup final the month before. TV sets were becoming cheaper. The rules about higher purchase were being relaxed. More transmitters were now being opened so that more people around the country could watch anyway. So, so yes, there was a kind of a, a, a bump in TV sales with the coronation, but they were on the up throughout that year and the following year. I think really it's a symbolic moment. It showed television's potential to do what radio had been doing for several decades by now, and that was to create a sense of a shared national event. It's interesting that you mentioned audience reactions there, because I think I'm right in saying this was the era of the BBC's first survey of viewership habits. Is that right? So the BBC had been conducting audience research for radio since the mid-1930s, and it's therefore set up to start analysing television viewing habits pretty quickly uh, in uh, in the late 1940s. So William Haley, the the post-war director general, who is famously regarded as someone very suspicious of television, gives in his oral history interview that he he did for the BBC a very vivid account of of looking at the very first um, survey that the BBC done of viewing habits. And and actually, in many ways, he's kind of horrified at what he's finding, uh, that that mealtimes are changing, that domestic chores are perhaps being abandoned, that there's already signs of a fall in the number of people going to the pub in the evening, more drinking at home and so on. And and so here he is looking at this, and he, he basically decides that if television as a kind of fairly primitive and limited service is having this effect, then a full service, when it develops more fully, it has to be taken seriously if it's going to have those those social effects. Now, of course, this is a very small sample, um, and it's therefore, in one sense, not very indicative of what happens when more and more people are watching. In 1949, mass observation do their own study and they uncover from their respondents, many of whom are women, a worry about television keeping them inside at home, that they're going to go out less. Some people excited by the idea of being able to watch Wimbledon and Ascot and so on. And all the time you've got this background sound, really, a hum of 
hand-wringing from cultural commentators, uh, sociologists and anthropologists who are starting to kind of look at television and what its impact might be. And they're worried about whether or not it will introduce cultural sameness, whether or not it will mean the end of community life. Will it Will people become addicted to this? And there are extraordinary phrases that you can read in some of the literature of the time. Richard Hoggart, uh, in his Uses of Literacy, published in 1957, someone who at this stage does not have a television set of his own, refers to television viewers being dead from the eyes downward. J.B. Priestley uh, talks about the prospect of a nation becoming half-witted, Now, in fact, you know, as more and more evidence comes in, what we see is television doesn't really dramatically change domestic life. There's an initial fascination with it. And then quite quickly, it becomes a normal part of domestic life. It's woven in to the fabric of domestic life, family life, routines, uh, and and so on. It, it, It becomes normal, and in a sense, fairly banal, and less threatening. Talking about one particular sector of society, I suppose, what do children's programmes from this decade reveal about the BBC and I suppose also about the way in which children were viewed by society at large? I think when we look back now at grainy images of of children's television and we look at Watch With Mother, Bill and Ben the Flowerpot Men or Andy Pandy, it's hard to get a sense of what they would have been like at the time. They seem quaint. They seem a bit amateur, a, a little bit sentimental, cloying maybe. And then, of course, we know that there were things like the toddler's truce, this idea that, that television should cease for an hour or so in the early evening in, in order to allow parents to put their, their children to bed. It it conjures up the notion of a BBC that is a bit nanny-ish, I suppose. But when you dig in a little bit more and you you listen to the accounts of the programme makers involved, you start to see something which is a little bit more considered and a little bit more thought out. The Toddler's Truce itself makes sense in an era of rationing. The benefits of rationing were 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 widely supported. The idea that too much of something might be harmful. And the BBC was very clear that it didn't want to create a nation of TV viewers. It wanted to create active citizens. Um, There were always better things to do. So the idea of the toddler's truce was, in a deeper ethical sense, an enabling attitude. And if you look at something like Andy Pandy with the kind of jerky movements and so on, the programme makers were very clear that those jerky movements matched almost exactly what an average three-year-old could do. So they were kind of well-judged ways of reflecting the reality of life for its viewers. And the BBC regarded children as citizens in the making and As citizens in the making, the BBC was keen to offer them what it called a full service in miniature. In other words, if it was the case that adults would be 
would reach, as it were, true citizenship and the leading of a full life through having a range of programmes, drama, entertainment, news, information, discussion, and so on, then so too should children. And and again, it's the, it's the overall mix, it's the schedule that actually is very BBC in terms of offering this full range, wildlife programmes, adventure programmes, drama serials and, and, and so on. I think that tells us something about the BBC's attitude to children and how children were perceived uh, in the 1950s. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There was a former head of BBC News, John Coatman, quite a conservative figure, who warned in the 1950s that if the BBC became more and more interested in politics, then politicians would become more and more interested in the BBC. And in a sense, that's what comes to pass in the 1950s. Another big change uh, during this period was the launch of ITV in 1955. To what extent did that ruffle the BBC's feathers? It's actually hard to detect a great deal of public clamour for commercial TV as such. But you've got evidence of weariness with the whole idea of rationing, with being told what to do. And crucially... At Westminster in 1951, of course, you've got an election. And with that election, you've got an incoming generation of younger conservative MPs who are much more committed to the idea of the free market, uh, to uh, to consumer uh, society and so on. And to them, the BBC smacked just of, of the big state of a kind of we know best attitude. Now, the BBC's response to that was was a kind of confidence that bordered on arrogance sometimes. So you've got uh, an accomplished programme maker like Hugh Weldon, who works in television and television arts, and he describes vividly life at Alexandra Palace and Lime Grove in the 1950s. And he says, as programme makers, we were already in competition with ourselves. The BBC, in other words, uh, had a sort of intrinsic, organic sense of ambition and quality uh, and so on that meant it didn't need any external competition. Well, when ITV was launched in 1955, it had pretty good ratings pretty quickly. Um, it had a lot of popular programmes. It used American imports, but it had good British-made programmes, Armchair Theatre, Adventures of Robin Hood. It had quiz shows with prizes and so on. It was winning the ratings war. And that was a challenge to the BBC, not just in the area of entertainment, but in areas that it regarded very much as its own. In news, for instance, where independent television news was actually having newsreaders on air, in vision, something the BBC had not done. ITN also had interviews with politicians which were not quite so deferential as the BBC. They were more probing. It was also producing some really good dramas. Now, the BBC had a had a sort of broad philosophical defence to the arrival of commercial television, which was 
its aims were fundamentally different. The idea of the BBC was to provide a space where without the pressure of commercial ratings, without the pressure of political interference, it could, through planning and common sense, create and protect a full range of programmes. Well, that was the philosophical defence. In practical terms, it had to respond by sharpening up its own output. So it had to start putting its own newsreaders in front of the camera. It had to start tightening up its presentation and 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 being a little bit sharper, selling itself. It had to introduce children's programmes and teenage programmes that had a bit more action to them, a bit more dynamism. So there was a kind of sharpening up across the board and, of course, the turning on of the money taps from Broadcasting House. So, you know, the resources that had been piled into radio now are being switched increasingly to television to secure some of those contracts with big entertainers and and, and so on. So even though the BBC publicly would try and pretend that it was very secure and and really the arrival of commercial television wasn't having a huge effect, it it it, it certainly prompted a, a whole ripple of changes throughout the corporation. Are there any changes in terms of the structure or the staffing of the BBC that tell us something about the BBC in this decade? There are several things that are on a large scale. First of all, the fact that television becomes its own department, its own directorate, and and has in that sense independence and a budget of its own is a really important uh, structural change in the BBC. If we think about radio, then... There's a tripartite division of radio, which comes into force after the war. Um, So you have uh, the light programme, the home service and the third programme that are all created in the the late 1940s. What William Hadley, the director general, referred to as as a pyramid. Now, in his mind, this pyramid was quite dynamic. The idea was that the light programme would occupy the sort of bottom half of the pyramid and it would be for about half the population and it would be kind of, it wouldn't be as, as slick or as vulgar as, say, American television, uh, American radio, but it, it, it would be light and it would be popular. And then the middle of the pyramid, the home service was the kind of standard national programme of information and entertainment at an accessible but informative level. And then the very glittering top of the pyramid would be the third programme, high culture, uncompromising for about, you know, 10% of of the population. Uh, But what we see in the 1950s is the solidifying of this pyramid. William Haley wanted it to be dynamic. He believed that people would generally slowly over the years move up the pyramid. They would start with popular music, but eventually everyone would be loving and embracing Beethoven and the pyramid would become inverted. It didn't happen. And, 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 you know, what happened is that people became wedded, as it were, to a particular channel. They were light programme listeners or home service listeners or third programme listeners. And and that's actually an important kind of, as it were, non-change. The, the fact that it becomes kind of static and stable is just as important as something changing, I think. And the, the third thing I would say, which cuts across radio and television, is the rise of current affairs and the rise of political reporting. You have, in the 1950s, a steady flow of young 
graduates, politically minded, ambitious people, uh, mostly but not exclusively men coming through, figures such as Anthony Jay and John Freeman, Alistair Milne, Donald Baverstock. These are going to be the kind of senior managers of the BBC in the 1960s and the 1970s. And they're rising rapidly up the system. And because of their sort of ambition, they money and resources and ideas gravitate towards them. So, so there is a kind of a, a real sense of creative energy and liveliness in current affairs, particularly where it's based in Lime Grove. That starts in the 1950s and it, come, it will come to fruition in the 1960s. In our last episode about the 40s, we talked about the shifting relationship between the BBC and the government and politics. What was the situation in the 50s and were there any key moments in this shifting kind of dynamic, I suppose? It's it's a complicated relationship. If you think about post-war under Labour, you've got a Labour government until 1951, which is sort of building a new Jerusalem. It's introducing the welfare state. Uh, and, and if we remember that essentially it's it's trying to put into practice some of those recommendations of beverage uh, from the wartime uh, who's trying to slay the giants of 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 want and poverty and and so on well ignorance was one of the the giants to be slain and the bbc in a sense saw itself as aligned with the kind of politics of building a kind of new jerusalem in the cultural sense so in that sense even though the bbc wasn't politically aligned itself Labour's ambitions mapped onto the BBC's traditional Matthew Arnold approach of spreading sweetness and light, if you like. It became more complicated after 1951 and the election of the Conservatives because they, in a sense, saw the BBC as a blockage on the expansion of a kind of free market and consumer society. So that's the background. And you've also got a sense in which the BBC is trying to work out the extent to which it can cover the world of politics. There was a former head of BBC News, John Coatman, quite a conservative figure, who warned in the 1950s that if the BBC became more and more interested in politics, then politicians would become more and more interested in the BBC. And in a sense, that's what comes to pass in the 1950s. At the beginning of the period, you've you've got figures like Churchill and Attlee, who are both agreeing that when it comes to television, it really shouldn't cover politics. Um, there's also the 14-day rule, which is that the, the BBC should not report on uh, topics that are due to be discussed in Parliament over the next fortnight. You've got in charge of the BBC newsroom, an extraordinary figure called Tahu Hole, a New Zealander, who is ultra-cautious about editorial uh, uh, values. And, you know, it was basically safety first with him. So you start the period where there's very little ability to report politics. But gradually, and especially when commercial television comes along and ITN, in a sense, sets the pace, the BBC becomes more robust about uh, setting an agenda and deciding what could be covered. I suppose the key 
event in many ways is the Suez Crisis of 1956, where you get a kind of messy falling out with the government. Anthony Eden goes on air, a television broadcast, uh, to kind of justify his military intervention in the Middle East. The BBC, aware that public opinion and parliamentary opinion is divided, believes it's entirely appropriate for the leader of the opposition, Hugh Gateskill, to have a right of reply. The government believe that we're in a near war situation and therefore the BBC has to behave in kind of wartime conditions. And it and it's a it's a it's a kind of bruising episode in which the BBC, to give it its credit, in the end digs its heels in. Hugh Gateskill does get on TV and it establishes in some way that that the long-term trajectory here is that the crucible of debate for politics is actually going to be the TV studio not necessarily Parliament. Of course, we have to remember, there's still no live broadcasting from Parliament. In, in one sense, it's a self-inflicted wound by, by politicians that they won't allow the direct broadcasting of Parliament. So television and radio have to find other ways of covering politics. And one of the ways is to is to bring the crucible of debate into the studios of the BBC. So, so what we see is the slow, steady shifting of editorial control from the party machines at Westminster to the editorial teams of the broadcasters. Finally, that idea of it being a crucible of debate is really interesting. How how good was the BBC by this point of representing the whole of society, I suppose the diversity of people both in Britain and around the world? I think the balance sheet shows that it was pretty imperfect at capturing the diversity of the country. I mean, if we just think about uh, how increasingly multicultural Britain was becoming, of course, there's the, you know, iconic moment of Windrush in 1948. But Britain was already multicultural before then, and it's increasingly multicultural, uh, with a steady stream of immigration, especially from the Caribbean and later from the Indian uh, subcontinent. Now, what's happening on air? Well, the BBC has not necessarily been exclusively white. There were appearances, for instance, by lots of leading African-American performers in light entertainment, on radio before the war, in television before the war. So there's a tradition there, but generally they're performers in light entertainment. It's a kind of, in many ways, a stereotyped representation. If we look at radio and television in the 1950s, it tends to focus on quotes, the problems of immigration. Um, They were well-intentioned. They were intended to explore issues of white prejudice, the way in which new uh, arrivals in Britain were not necessarily treated well. There were problems in terms of the colour bar, the so-called colour bar, and so on. So they were well-intentioned. But when you get programme after programme, which is about the problems of immigration, it does tend to kind of represent multicultural Britain as being problematic. And there were very few examples of programmes that embraced uh, and explored the life of black Britons from the inside. 
And then on top of that, you have some pretty hard to defend examples of programming like the black and white minstrel show, which started in 1958 and is going to run on for another 20 years. Now, I know it's popular to say, ah, but it was of its time. But there were plenty of voices raised against it during its time, some of which were from the BBC. And the BBC failed to really consider seriously the effect of that programme on Britain's immigrant communities. Now, I don't want the balance sheet to be all negative. There are some positives in the balance sheet. You've got, through things like the overseas service in Bush House, the BBC's that's the BBC's window on the world. It's a cosmopolitan part of the BBC. And that does infuse the rest of the BBC, that kind of uh, people arriving from all over the world, a sense of thinking in a more global way. And also at home, you have a small number of progressive producers and programme makers who are trying to change things in documentary, in drama, And I suppose one solid example of this is in 1956, when John Elliott, a a white um, producer and writer, uh, creates a television drama, Man from the Sun, which is a, a vivid portrait of immigrant life from the inside, a well-observed, well-acted uh, drama that's put on peak time uh, television. So there are, there are, plenty of examples on the credit side as well. But but the change is slow and fitful in the 1950s. And really, we have to wait until the 1960s before the BBC really gets to grip, uh, before the BBC really gets to grips with multicultural Britain. That was David Hendy. You can read more from David in every issue of BBC History magazine. And his book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.